those videos. Okay, cool. All right. Um, Joe just reminded me that we are now finally in a lesson that we never covered last year. So I don't know if you guys know the history of this class, but we were like the, the beta class last year. And so we taught through a bunch of stuff to see if we wanted to do it church-wide. Then we went church-wide. So we've been like doing a big review of a lot of stuff we did last year. But this week I actually had to work hard <coughs> because we've never done never done this lesson before. So from there, here on out, it's fresh material. Hopefully, uh, <coughs> I'm wondering if maybe we should take the adult class a little bit further into the summer. I don't know. We'll see. Um, so anyway, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into our lesson this morning. Lord, thank you so much for just the time to be together uh, and to study your word. Thank you for uh, your great love for us, and thank you that you've made uh, your word so clear. Um, you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We know that there are things that are difficult to understand, uh, but you, you've given us your spirit, <clears throat> and you've given us a will to be able to, to study and to reach out. Uh, your word tells us that the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. And so we know there are great uh, truths in your word and also in the universe that if we apply ourselves, we can discern. Thank you, Lord, for your son Jesus, his death, his life, his burial and resurrection. Uh, we just pray that your spirit would guide us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, this morning, so we're going to be talking about reshaping the earth. Um, the main question that I want to ask, we're going to start by asking is, can we identify where the Garden of Eden was located? Africa, Africa maybe. Okay, that's a good, that, that's a good answer. It's a common response. What do you guys think? Okay, so maybe somewhere in Iraq. That's a, that's a common response. Okay, so you got the Tigers, Euphrates, because it describes those rivers, right, <coughs> in Genesis. Anybody else? Totally. Yeah, North Africa could be all over the place. Okay, why? Okay. Okay. That's that's an important response. <clears throat> is cuz there's a huge thing that that happened that alters our understanding of the pre-flood world and that is the flood. You have this thing called the flood that happens which as we're going to see this morning seems to have caused a huge change in the world. And so we have the pre, you know, kind of Noah's world before the flood, Noah's world after the flood. Um, <clears throat> many biblical scholars suggest that a lot of the names that get picked up post-flood are just Noah and his kids renaming stuff according to the names of what they knew before the flood. So like rivers that we're talking about, Euphrates and things like that, those were probably just names that they had. They get on the ark, they get off the ark. And it's just a completely different landscape now that's been just totally altered. And so they're just like, well, that river looks like the Euphrates, and that one looks like this and that, and that we're going to call that the Tigris. <clears throat> so we probably do have some idea of where the basic location of where the ark landed. But as far as anything before the flood, the Garden of Eden, we're going to suggest this morning and try to demonstrate that we probably have no clue where the Garden of Eden was because it was completely decimated. The whole world was changed, and, and we'll, we're going to make some suggestions why, both some biblical clues, <clears throat> but also what um, s many creation scientists are suggesting. So let's talk, we're going to be talking about reshaping the earth. Um, next week, um, we're going to be talking about the Tower of Babel, and I'm hoping to get to the Ice Age before the end of our class. We may skip a few lessons to get down to the Ice Age. We'll see. Um, so, say it again. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's it's crazy. We're we're gonna when we get there, we're gonna be suggesting a view of the Ice Age that was popular in the 1800s and earlier, but fell out of popularity in the late 1800s. But we'll get there. That's that's really important stuff. Um, let's we're so we're in the middle of our seven C's: creation, corruption, and we're in like our third period of biblical history. We're calling catastrophe. Um, and so this is largely about the pre-flood, what happened during the flood and the post-flood world. So we're going to do a little review, study God's word, talk about some application. Let's do some review from Dan's lesson last week. Um, what were the approximate dimensions of the ark in feet? Does anybody remember the approximate? You don't have to get it exactly, but okay. We got 500 feet. What else? Basically, 500 feet by about 85 feet um, wide by about 50 feet high, right? <clears throat> right in that neighborhood. Um, let's see. And so, so this is this is huge. Uh, the ark could hold approximately what was it like 500 boxcars? Um, so you're talking about a lot of material. So this is very different from. Um, you guys probably saw the picture last week of, you know, giraffes sticking their necks out of this little tugboat. And so we're, we're talking about a structure that is massive. You think about 500 feet, uh, almost two football fields long. Uh, that's a pretty big structure. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Noah took representatives of all the land, dwelling, air-breathing animals on board. How many of each did he take? That's right. Okay, so he had two by two, but seven of every clean animal. Why would he take seven of, quote-unquote, clean animals? Okay, that's true of the two by two, definitely. Um, probably not. I don't think so. I don't think it has anything to do with just the number seven. There's a reason why it's connected to what we call clean animals. In the Old Testament, what do you use clean animals for? Yes, yeah, so we're talking about sacrifice and also eating. So as soon as Noah and his kids get off the ark and his their wives, one of the first things to do is, is they worship, right, in the Old Testament sense, and they have a huge sacrifice. They're actually killing many of these animals. <clears throat> so obviously they're not going to kill the ones where there's only two. So they're killing the, the ones that have been brought on in sevens. But then also some suggest that it probably provided food since you have this uh, command to Noah in chapter nine that now you can eat meat. Before that, there was no indication that human beings at least were commanded to eat meat. Now, there probably were human beings eating meat because we know violence covered the whole earth. <clears throat> um, but it wasn't something that God sanctioned up until after Noah got off the ark. Did Noah have lions, tigers, cougars, leopards on the ark, according to last week's lesson? Okay, that's a common idea, but we suggested something else last week. That's the question. It, yeah, exactly. Totally. So, yeah, Allison. Excellent. Yeah, so right there in Genesis, God says he created animals according to their kind, which we're guessing is probably like equivalent to families. What um, scientists are suggesting is that a kind is probably equivalent to uh, those species that can actually produce young together so that they can, act, they can actually mate and then reproduce themselves. So <clears throat> uh, lions, tigers, cougars, leopards, these are all species that can reproduce together. So that's, that's been the, the common viewpoint for a while now. And so Noah would not have had to have taken like every single you know, subspecies um, 
you know, every single difference in a beak of a bird. He would only need to bring on the, f the family unit and that all of the material that was necessary within that animal, <clears throat> all of the various varieties, just like in human beings. So the, the big example is humans, right? You got Noah, his wife, and then you got three, three boys and three girls. And it, it was out of that family that produced all of the different varieties that we see in the world today. All of the different races, hair colors, eye colors, skin colors, that all comes right from the information that God had built inside of Noah and his family. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of a, it, that's part of the, the difficulty is he created each animal according to its kind. And then it says, um, and then they reproduced according to their kind. So it seems like the word kind has something to do with reproduction. That's part of why uh, both Bible scholars and scientists argue for kind being connected to reproduction. So for instance, like you're not going to see an, you know, an elephant and a zebra reproduce some zebra elephant thing, right? But a horse and a zebra can reproduce. In all the different varieties of dogs, I think I'm not, I think Dan probably showed the video, like the dog, like all the varieties of dogs we have today, um, like I think the video suggested that back in the 1600s, um, you know, there were very few kinds in Europe. And then all the stuff that we see in today, the variety, all descended from the 1600s. Yeah, Dan. Oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, same thing with bears. It's not like you needed a polar bear and you needed this kind of bear and that kind of bear. Just kind of like the bear kind. And then all the information that was necessary. Just like there was all the information necessary for racial uh, differences and skin color and eye color was right there in Noah and his family. All the varieties that were necessary for the different varieties of bears were right there inside of that bear kind that came on the ark. I think Joe had something? Totally. Yep. And that's why, if you guys remember Matthew McLean, when he was here, um, when he was speaking, he talked about the idea, <clears throat> you know, that the, the, the modern accepted theory is that everything evolves from one basically single cell organism. And so you have just this tree, whereas he argues that what you actually see in the, in the geological strata and the, in, um, in the evidence is that you have multiple, it's more like, a, how did he describe it? It's like a, a big field of wheat. So you have multiple branches that all have a, a starting point. And so he argues <coughs> with other, other Christians that based on the evidence that we see is it, what you have in the flood reflects the evidence that's in, in archeology span is you go back to a certain point and you just see the starting of bears and then it starts to branch off and you see varieties of bears but you don't see you don't see any dissension from like this one cell organism or so on and so forth oh yeah Yeah, totally. Yeah, it does seem like that God has, he's created, you know, human beings and the various animals to be able to adjust their environment. And so you'll have certain animals will die off, certain animals will survive. And and so so Christian scientists who are trying to follow the Bible, we do not deny adaptation of, of various species. What we deny is that there's a slow progression of, evolution from one species to another. 
<clears throat> and so, um, and that seems to be borne out um, outside of the Bible in the in the archaeological evidence. All right. So, and then one final thing on that is just that um, is also just the very the sizes of the animals. Um, you know, Christian scientists are they've run some studies on the various sizes of animals, and that only eleven percent of of the various kinds would be larger than a sheep. So the vast majority of the animals that would have come on the ark would be smaller than a sheep. And then even large animals like dinosaurs, I mean, this is guesswork, but very easily God could have brought dinosaurs that were babies or young when they came on the ark. It wouldn't, obviously, we don't have a full-grown brontosaurus <clears throat> that jumps on the ark. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the raptors. Yeah. They're more like a chicken or like a turkey. Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Yes, there's a difference between Hollywood and what's actually in the strata. Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, God's design and given the ability to adapt. and Yeah, it's amazing. Well, let's go ahead and study. Um, let's take a look at some passages in Scripture. Um, let's open up to Genesis 7. And so we're going we're gonna to try to... Um, We've looked at these passages in the past, but what we're looking for here is evidence of exactly how does the Bible describe <clears throat> the land mass before the flood, and how does the Bible describe the source of water in the flood, and and how should that or how could that impact our view of the past? Now. All of this is based upon the idea that we've been promoting in this class from the very beginning is that the Bible gives us real history. The Bible's not just giving us fantasies. The Bible is reporting real history. And so let's start in verse 10. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives and the three wives of the sons with them entered the ark. And then every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah two by two and all flesh in them is the breath of that is in them is the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went as God had commanded him and the Lord shut them in. So let's ask some questions of this text. Um, So first of all, what two sources of water are given in the text, there are two sources of water mentioned. Right. So yeah, there's fountains. That's one of them. Um, I think, yeah. So, so I think the fountains and springs seems to be one source, and then the windows of heaven is another source. So there seems to be something coming from below, and something coming from above. Yeah. 
Right. <clears throat> Right, and there, there, um, that, there's actually a couple different views on that. But yes, a lot of people would say that. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, and then some people would argue that this was the first time it rained, and that's actually that's actually very possible. Um, now, does the heaven have literal windows? No, so this is obviously a figure of speech. Yep, it's a figure of speech. The floodgates. Oh, that's good. The floodgates of the sky. So yeah, we're talking about a figure of speech that needs to be interpreted. How long did the rain fall according to this text? That's right. So we got forty days, forty nights of just continual rainfall, um, which is amazing. I don't know about. I mean, when it's been raining here lately in Marina Valley, if it just rains hard for like just three or four hours, you're trouble right my backyard turns into lake berry um say it again yes this is the word young yeah it's not like 40 you know forty thousand years or something like that um how is the door of the ark closed that's right so god shuts them in and do we need to interpret any figures of speech definitely so we've got the fountains of the deep and i'll just kind of cut to the chase uh you could look up these verses on your own, but basically, if you were to look at Ezekiel 26 or Isaiah 51:10, the idea of the great deep, great deep is a common expression for the depths of the ocean. So there seems to be <clears throat> um, some breaking forth from underneath the ocean, some opening up where suddenly there's just this huge flow of water <clears throat> that begins to come from underneath, and then windows of heaven seems to be something has opened up that's causing great uh, amounts of water to come from above. So both below and from above. Um, now, let me just, from the curriculum, tell me your name again. My name? Yeah. Kenny. Kenny. That's right, Kenny. Um, the canopy theory that, Kenny, that Kenny's talking about, the fact that there's water all around, that there had never been any rain on the earth, that's a real common theory, and it's probably been one of the more dominant theories in Christian circles up until maybe about 10 or 15 years ago. Um, the idea here is that basically is that it, that it's ne- it had never rained before the flood, um, although that's a little bit of an implication. If you remember what Pastor Milton, when he was preaching through that section, it's a little bit of an implication. There's different ways that you can go with, with the words in that passage. And so some have suggested this canopy of water surrounding the earth that caused the rain. Um, and so this idea was proposed to solve some scientific objections to the pre-flood uh, portions of Scripture, but uh, it actually seems to cause more problems than 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 solve problems and so i want to suggest that while the canopy theory is held by a number of people it's not something that we're required to hold by scripture you can you guys can take a look at it on your own go on answers in genesis what we're going to be watching here in a moment is is a video that actually proposes a different theory and that is is that as the as the the deeps begin to sever that the water that shoots up out of the ground is 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 responsible for part of what uh, of the rain that actually comes down itself, but that there was rain that was happening uh, even before the flood. But God causes all of the rain to come down at once. Um, so with that, we're going to go ahead and take a look at this video that just kind of gives you know kind of an animation look of of what this might have looked like um, when the flood was initiated and it's a real short so we'll just take a quick look at it all right <clears throat> um so that's a a possible suggestion and it, we're going to look at a couple passages of scripture let's go back to genesis one um to get a little bit of a flavor for why we've got like one continent in the video the only thing i don't like about that video from a biblical standpoint, can anybody guess what? I oh, don't know. I love drums. 
What are you talking about, Brian? Uh, Genesis 6 that says that the condition of mankind was that all of his thoughts were only evil continually and violence covered the earth. So when they're kind of like showing a mom and her child just kind of playing games and people in the market, I don't imagine that that's the pre-flood world at all. I'm thinking of like apocalyptic Mad Max, just total craziness where people are just killing each other and raping each other. And it's just nuts. And so, and so instead of people playing games and stuff, you've probably got people who are right in the middle of like having some big old gladiator blood fast <clears throat> right before the, um, you know, the, the flood occurs. And I don't think the floods coming down on mankind while they're just kind of ha- hanging out, just doing cool things with their family. Yeah, yeah, it could be, could be. They um, Answers in Genesis has some suggestions on some of the design, which, you know, they admit is not necessarily biblical or unbiblical. But we'll, we'll take a look at that here in a second. But yeah, I, um, yeah, I think it was probably pretty rustic looking. I mean, pitch everywhere and all that kind of stuff. When you first met me, I was playing the drums. That's probably the one of three times I've ever done it. Where was I? Was I playing? The, where was I playing the drums? Over there at the RBC. Wow. Little known fact. I can actually keep four four time. Um, okay, so let's let's look at Genesis one, verse nine. Yeah, nine and ten. This so back to the creation. Let after God had created the earth it says let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry implied land appear and it was so and god called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas so this suggests to many bible scholars as well as creation scientists that so god creates the earth and it's just just covered with water then Probably God causes the land, part of the land mass that's underneath the water to rise and causes land to appear. And it's it's hard to read too much into this text, but it just says land. Um, I guess theoretically Moses could have said, you know, various land masses or various continents, whatever. Uh, but some people see, read in here just one big land mass. In other words, maybe perhaps just one continent. Um, so you have, um, and so um, for the whole earth to be covered with water pre-flood, part of the implication is, is while there are hills or quote unquote mountains, we're not talking about Mount Everest before the flood. We're not talking about um, the Himalayas. Um, the great mountains, the Sierras, the Himalayas, creation scientists are suggesting are a result of the flood, not necessarily part of the pre-flood world. So that that's a, a one another response to people that argue, like, where did all the water come from? Well, first of all, the pre-flood world, there's nothing that says the pre-flood world had the same land structure that we have today. <clears throat> In fact, what we're, what we're arguing is that, is that, when the great deeps were broken up, um, there was a, a significant impact on the earth. And so let's let's talk about a few things here. Um, and then we're going to let me see. When are we going to hit Psalm 104? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. There is so much. Sub- oh, yeah. I, and I've, I've seen that by firsthand experience. I don't know if how many of you get. Oh, yeah. You got well water. Any of you guys ever any you guys ever do any backpacking? Any backpackers here? Okay. Uh, yeah. Geysers Hot Springs. I remember going up to the Sierras 
at a place. There's a, uh, a lake up there called White Chief Lake outside of, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the name of it. You can actually drive up to it out, out, of, out of Porterville. <coughs> we, we hiked. We hiked. I took a group of teenagers, like delinquents, um, in this camp I used to work for. We hiked like... 25 miles into this area and we came in at night we i wasn't sure where we were and then we wake up i go on this ridge and i see these senior citizens walking up this path to us i'm like man i thought i was in the middle of nowhere these people just drove up here and uh but anyway we did some hiking around this white chief lake and went down into some caves and there's just streams all over the place i i I would never do it these days i don't know what i was thinking but yeah, we went climbing in there. We had flashlights, and we tried to leave little bread trails so we could find our way out. But I was an idiot. I'm like, what if it's like a huge storm happens and we're down in the middle of these caves, you know, down there at White Chief. You know, Mike Berry drowns. It's on my, in my, uh, it goes in the paper or something. Um, so anyway, so you've got, uh, um, so these land masses, or one big land mass, the Great Deep comes up. Um so let me give you a couple quotes here from our curriculum. Um, in 1859, uh, the year Darwin published his famous book, Antonio Snyder proposed that the continents had been connected at one point in the past. He looked at the way the coastlines of the continents appear to fit and proposed that the continents had moved apart during the flood. So this whole de- idea of Pangea, have you guys, you guys ever seen Ice Age? Right, and Ice Age kind of promotes in a cartoon form this idea of Pangea, this one continent. Well, that that theory was proposed by a Christian uh, before Darwin and before the idea of gradualism. Um, he 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 saw it as part of the flood, as he began to look at the way the continents seemed to fit together. He argued that there was that the the breaking apart of the Great Deep perhaps caused this huge breaking apart of this one land mass. Um, And then later it was secular scientists that suggested that the continents had drifted apart slowly. This idea was later embraced by many scientists as the ocean floors were explored and it's become the common belief today. Um, Rather than happening slowly over millions of years, models based on the Bible suggest that the continents moved apart very rapidly during the flood as Snyder had proposed. While the details of such models are tested, it is important that we hold loosely to the scientific models and hold fast to the clear truth of the scripture. That's a very important point. I mean, this is an interesting idea, and, and I think it has a lot, of, um, a lot to commend it. But there's interesting ideas that Christians have come up with to explain biblical data in the past that later, after further investigation, proved to not be the best explanation. So we always want our foundation to be on the Bible. And then scientific models, just like Matthew McLean said a few weeks ago, they're approximations of truth. We do the best we can to approximate what we think might be the case. And so this idea of one landmass with the breaking apart of the deep, it seems, it seems to make sense. Um, and so we call this catastrophic plate tectonics. So this, this would be a Christian science term. Is uh, Christians follow a theory of of catastrophic movement whereas the the dominant viewpoint today is what we call uniformitarianism uniform what uniformitarianism the idea is all the processes that we see today have happened happened at the exact same rate into the past and that catastrophes there's never been catastrophes like the flood or anything that would cause these rates to change or to speed up in any point in time Uh, you basically have three philosophical theories that all just about all scientists buy into today it cannot be proven scientifically they're just starting points the first one is naturalism that everything must be explained by natural causes there's no supernatural okay so naturalism the second thing is uniformitarianism that everything happens at the exact same rate so if we see a river flowing down in a valley and if we can measure how much if you can measure how much land masses is is being removed in that river, then you can extrapolate that in the past and say, well, this must have been going on for X number of millions of years. Um, so that's gradualism. Um, the third one is um, uniformitarianism. No, no, that was uniformitarianism. The, the, third, the third one is gradualism. Gradualism is the idea that everything happens slowly, not rapidly. Those things aren't necessarily proven scientifically. They're just starting points. 
as, cre- as Christians come to look at the world from a biblical worldview, we argue that there is natural, but there's also supernatural causes. We argue for catastrophism, you know, that ev- all the processes that we see aren't necessarily the same processes that happened in the past. And we don't believe that everything has always happened gradually. We argue from the flood that some things have happened very rapidly. And so those are all philosophical things that really don't have anything to do with, uh, si- with science itself. <clears throat> Most scientists refer to the movement as continental drift and suggest it occurred slowly over millions of years. A biblical model suggests that most of the movement happened in a matter of months and could be better called a continental sprint. I like that idea. <clears throat> I like that versus the continental drift. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just go up here into the San Bernardino Mountains and see what happens when they have when we have our flash flood warnings and things like that. <coughs> so just to, you know, put that onto a flood. Uh, if you guys want to see a really good article that we won't talk about in this class that talks about the pre-flood world, uh, and he actually this guy actually argues for an intermediate state where everything's underwater and then it begins to spread apart. Andrew Snelling, this is one of the um, professors that Matthew McLean really is big on. Uh, he loves this guy. Anyway, so you can go check out this article, Noah's Lost World. It's on Answers in Genesis. Um, let's take a look at Genesis 8. Genesis 8. Go ahead and open up there. And we'll take a look at this section. This is very interesting. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were also stopped. So those two sources of of water stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually on the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month of the seventh day on the mountains uh, uh, of the month on the mountains, plural, of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month of the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Then he sent out a raven, which uh, he kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up on the earth. So let's let's make some observations. Um, what did God cause to happen in verse one and two? Yeah, so we have basically this: the source of the water is is stopped. Um, and what day of of the flood did this occur on? No cigar, close though. Yeah, that's a good guess. Verse three. Yeah, 150th day. Good. And what happened to the water level at this point? What did the water level begin to do? Yeah, it began to recede. So you guys know that parents know this. You know, your kids get in, they take a bath. You say, hey, time to get out of the bath. They pull the plug. What happens at water? Starts. So it's going somewhere, right? Gravity is going to bring that water. <clears throat> and if you guys have ever built a sandcastle on the beach, you know, that water comes in. And when, when the tide comes in, you can make this wonderful sandcastle, and then it comes up, destroys it all, and then it, has, it starts returning back. So imagine, you know, water, ret- you know, covering the entire earth, and then it begins to go somewhere. What is lots and lots of water going to do as it begins to move and go somewhere? Say it again. It's going to erode rapidly. That kind of water is going to take a lot of stuff with it, and it's going to do a lot of reshaping. Um, where did the ark rest? <clears throat> yeah, so we have the mountains of Ararat. It doesn't say Mount Ararat itself. It says the mountains of Ararat. By the way, Spock found Noah's Ark. Did you guys know that? Leonard Nimoy found it in the 1970s. <clears throat> but for some reason, we haven't been able to get in there and take a real picture. I don't know why. What's that? You have that on video? Yeah, found Noah's Ark, yeah. 
Um, how long did the waters continue to decrease until about the 10th month? And then we have the tops of the mountain scene and so on and so forth. Um, so lots of interesting stuff going on here in this part of our text. So we have the waters increasing, then we have the waters decreasing. Um, and then we're seeing the tops of the mountains. And then we have the ark that begins, that is resting on the mountains of Ararat. Does this mean that, um, that we can go to Mount Ararat in modern Turkey and find it? A um, couple suggestions on this. And I think I sent you guys an article on this last night that I thought was really, really good. Is one, it talks about mountains. We're talking about a chain. Two, we're not even sure that what Noah would have called Ararat are the, the same mountains that we call Ararat today. You need to remember, just like, uh, let's see, New England, you know, is, you know, people come over to the colonies and they call this place New England, right? Because they remember England. Um, there's a place here in Los Angeles, an area of Los Angeles that I just found out about that my grandparents used to live in. It's a, it's a part of Los Angeles called San Antonio. It's not a city in and of itself, but it's an area that's right near Dodger Stadium called San Antonio. Why did they call that area San Antonio? Probably because they used to live in Texas, and I know my grandparents lived in Texas, came over to this part of California in the 1800s, settled, and said, we're going to call this San Antonio. <clears throat> and so, yeah, Sunnymead, exactly. So that happens all the time. So wherever the ark landed, it could be the mountains of Ararat. It could be that Noah called this area Ararat. And then later on, many, you know, a couple generations later, people looked at some mountains. It reminded them of Noah and the flood and they called it Ararat. We don't know. <clears throat> the other thing is that um, I think it's Andy Snelling is the one that wrote about this is that Mount Ararat in that area. It's, it's very volcanic. And so um, there's several things that could have happened to the ark. It could have been covered in volcanic blasts after the flood. Um, the other thing that could have happened is if you're Noah and his, if he starts having a bunch of kids, what do you think they're going to do when they look at this big old ark that on the, on top of a mountain that doesn't have any use anymore for water <clears throat> and you need to build a house? What are you going to start to do with that wood? You're going to start tearing that thing down, using it to build your homes, maybe using it for firewood to make food. And so... <clears throat> yeah, unless there's already wood there, which we don't know how long it took for trees to grow back and things like that. Um, <coughs> so the likelihood, we don't, know, we don't know any of this for sure. It's a speculation. My guess is that the ark was dismantled over time after. Otherwise, unless the ark was buried in earth, it could not have fossilized. To get a fossil, it has to be buried. And um, otherwise, it would have been corroded or people probably would have used it for other things. It is interesting that um, one article that Snelling was referring to, if people said if they could, what's the, what's the most significant archaeological find that you would love to see? The number one listing in the secular magazine was Noah's Ark. <coughs> um, no, they did not. <coughs> that was a show that uh, In Search Of that Leonard Nimoy used to host where they made lots and lots of money on all kinds of spurious evidence. Yeah, it was just kind of like back then, like people, I guess, couldn't really it was difficult to get into Turkey. And so they were just kind of trying to show satellite photos and all kinds of like interviews of people who said they had seen it and all this nonsense. And yeah, there's never been any any verifiable information of a finding of Noah's Ark, <clears throat> although they have found Goliath's bones. If you go on Snopes dot com, uh, they have found Goliath's bones. <laughs> that's that's a nonsense too. Yeah, Snopes. Yeah. Okay, let's go ahead. Let's take a look at this uh, this final video about the shape of the ark, and then we'll come back and wrap some things up. And again, this is kind of scientific speculation. Okay, so this <clears throat> this actually was the predominant viewpoint. <clears throat> the explanation of the various fossils and stuff before uh, the late 1800s, as we suggested even with uh, Snyder, um, Antonio Snyder being the first one to suggest the 
kind of the one big land mass and so on. <clears throat> I don't know if you could see in the in the video where it showed the bent layers in the rock. It's hard to get the perspective on how big that is, but if you look down in the lower right-hand corner, there's little tiny people. So this is a hundreds hundreds of feet of of uh, mud that have been calcified. The only way that you get bent stuff like that is if it's soft at first, <clears throat> and then it's able to bend. So the idea of this just happening very, very, very slowly over millions of years doesn't work. How do you get bends like that over millions of years? It just does not work. <clears throat> and so that's not to say that um, that every that we have every answer out there from a geological perspective. Um, and so, in, and the Bible does not require you to be able to answer every single question that some skeptics can have. But I think what we are seeing is that even from a geological perspective, <clears throat> there's good rational reasons for the flood. How is it that you get land deposits from the Appalachians down in the southwest? How is it that you have sea um, fossils up at the a mile above sea level? Well, if you're looking at it from an evolutionary standpoint, you say, well, just millions and millions of years ago, that land mass was below the ocean. <clears throat> the problem is, is that there's lots of evidence for rapid decay, not just gradual decay. And so, and so, you know, these are some of, of the arguments that are being met, made. Let's go ahead and, <clears throat> and finally open to Psalm 104. And uh, if you don't have a copy of your Bible, I think I have this on our PowerPoint. Yeah. <coughs> While this is, um, this Psalm is a piece of poetry, it goes back to the creation and it begins to go through not just the creation, but <clears throat> it seems to also refer to the flood. So we'll start it here in verse six. Oh, I'm sorry. Psalm 104. Psalm 104. So um, the psalmist says you covered it. That is in context, the land, the earth with with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. Okay. At your rebuke, they fled, and at the sound of your thunder, they stood, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. <clears throat> now, if this is speaking of the flood, um, this gives some very interesting information, is we know that God at some point caused landmass to rise during creation but but the floods did but the floods eventually covered that landmass here in verse 9 it says you set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth so whatever's happening here it's something that never happened again <clears throat> um, so it doesn't seem like it could refer to the creation because once you get to the flood, the flood does cover the entire earth, at least according to Noah, I mean Moses. And so verse 8 is what is particularly interesting, is that you have the, you know, the uh, attribute, they fled, the sound of your thunder, they, they took flight, the mountains rose, the valley sank, the place where you appointed them. This... Uh, many people argue, and I, I'm, I'm one that's in this camp, that this is a look into uh, the geology of the flood. <clears throat> is that you have this great flood, the, the, the deeps open up, there's this huge uh, mass amounts of water that are released, <clears throat> both from below and from above, and, and that God in his processes causes the mountains to rise to cause the waters to recede and then the valleys are made low. And so as mountains are rising and waters receding, it, it, that gives explanation to some of the incredible canyons that you see throughout the world, particularly things like the Grand Canyon. And, um, and so you just have this huge movement of land. <coughs> now, again, this isn't a poetic portion of scripture, but just because it's in a poetic portion of scripture doesn't mean that, we're, we, that everything in there is just meant to be taken metaphorically because it talks about the creation right from the very beginning. Later on, it, it's giving literal information. So it's definitely praise, but he seems to be giving literal information in that praise. Um, so if the earth was totally reshaped, 
Can we ever find the Garden of Eden? Let's go back to our initial question. Now, I would say no. <clears throat> so it seems like, and there, there are a lot of implications in this, speculations in this lesson, but basically, <clears throat> whatever our, the geography of the world was before the flood, it seems like it was completely altered after the flood. Therefore, we could, there's no way possible for us to know where the Garden of Eden is. Even some, say it again? Yeah, it, yeah, it was wiped out in the flood. Even things like the Tigris River and these various rivers that are named, uh, the, that's probably completely gone. Those are names that just get picked up and then they're reattached to new rivers post-flood. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Totally. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Say it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we'll when we look at the lesson on the ice age, um, a lot of again, this is all before the gradualism, you know, uniformitarianism, naturalism that came in the late 1800s. <clears throat> but the ice age was proposed to be a post-flood occurrence by many um, scientists before the rise of uh, gradualism. And so um, we'll be looking at this lesson in a little bit, but the Ice Age is a relatively recent phenomenon um, that is a post-flood type of occurrence probably. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's just some really interesting stuff here. Let's So let's just do some application and then we'll pray. Um, so we've seen from the text... Um, that as we look uh, that the rock layers and fossils we see spanning the globe are explained by, the bi by what the Bible reveals about the flood. If there was a global flood, we would expect to find billions of dead things buried in rock layer, laid down by water all over the earth. <clears throat> That's exactly what we see. Yeah, I got to say it with an accent like Ken Ham. Yeah, I got to sing the song. Um, we would expect to see erosional features that can only be explained by truly massive amounts of water moving across the continents like Devil's Tower in Wyoming, Grand Canyon, uh, Ayers Rock, and others around the globe that stand testament to this flood. Do biblical geologists have all the answers to explain every aspect of the geology of the earth in light of the flood? No. <clears throat> Just like no scientists, there's mysteries that every scientific theory has. <clears throat> and so in this lesson, if you were to ask Andrew Snelling, if you were to talk to Matthew McLean and say, are you able to explain all of the data on our globe based upon what we see in the Bible? He's going to say, no, there's questions we still don't know the answers to. That's just part of science is we're trying to approximate the truth. Our ultimate basis for truth is the Bible. <clears throat> when we look at science, we're trying to approximate the truth. We're given probabilities, <clears throat> but we're not attaching ourselves too tightly to any of those theories. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> in light of all that we've studied in this lesson and the flood as a whole, do you expect yourself to know all the answers to every question a skeptic might ask you about the flood? Do you? No, you should not feel that pressure. The Bible never says you need to be able to answer every single question that somebody brings up to you. It's not what the Bible says. You need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you in talking to people in gentleness and in fear or respect. If somebody asks you a question, you don't know the answer to it. A great thing just to say is, man, that's a great question. I don't know. Let me see if I can find out. That earns, when, as I'm in conversation with people, <clears throat> my conversations always go better when there comes a point where I'm willing to say, gosh, I, I just don't know. Then if I try to plug ahead and pretend like I know or just get louder <clears throat> in the debate, um, just say that's great question I don't, I don't know when i was watching matthew mclean over here after he spoke a week uh, whenever that was a month ago it was just such a great example to me to see him interacting we had a number of uh i think uh, emily's professor came and there was a few other people scientists people and a lot of times he knew answers and he would share it with them and other times he, he didn't he goes you know that's a great question we're still trying to figure that one out that we don't really have the data on that and, uh, and it's okay to do that. <clears throat> it's okay to admit that we don't know. 
What if you don't know the answer to someone's question related to the flood, geological features, just like we just said? Um, why can't we trust? Why can we trust that the flood was a real event that truly reshaped the earth? Why can we trust that? Yeah, because ultimately we have an eyewitness who is God himself. God is the only one <clears throat> that's, you know, that can really tell us that this is what happened. I was there. I saw the whole thing happen. I caused the whole thing to happen. And he's revealed it to us in his word. I was watching. Uh, any guys ever seen Buster Keaton? He's one of my favorite silent film stars. <clears throat> and there's this film called The Navigator where he's on this boat. And he doesn't realize that his girlfriend is also on the boat. And they're running around the boat trying to find each other. And the, you, you have this wide pan where you see them running around the boat and they can't find each other because they're always on the opposite side, which is the, which is the big problem with us who are finite is you could run around the universe and, and not find another person and say that person doesn't exist because you're always on the opposite side of the universe. But God's the only one that's omnipresent, omniscient. And so if he says something is true, we can know that it's true because he can be at all places at all times. He knows all things, whereas you and I can't. We can only approximate truth in and of ourselves. Um, finally, last couple, how can we understand? How can an understanding of the flood help us understand more about the character and nature of God? <clears throat> He's incredible. I mean, the, a God that can actually cause water to shoot up out of the ground, totally reshape the planet that can destroy every single being, every single human and air breathing animal and restart the whole thing, reboot it. That's a pretty powerful God. It shows that he is a God of justice, judgment, but also a God of mercy that he was willing to save Noah and his family and restart the human race. And that he hasn't brought his judgment yet on us uh, since then is just amazing. And we can use that to share the gospel. Um, any final questions you guys have or comments? Yeah. That is a great point. I forget. Um, gosh, I was just re read, reading that the other day that, yeah, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's really the favorable position, right? Is uh, is that we, we look at what God's word says like little children. We say, God, I believe what your word says. And, uh, and then we find out that his word just demonstrates itself over and over again. It's a great point, Ken. Any other questions you guys have? <clears throat> yeah. Oh. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you see, yeah, it's amazing where you find, um, you know, fossils of sea creatures. Um, I know there's different parts in the Sierras. We, you see evidence of that, and there's a place up somewhere towards Bakersfield that's uh, a megalodon um, excavation, and you can go. Really? Yeah, and and excavate yourself. Wow. That's crazy. Which reminds me, Matthew McLean invited us to go digging with him. I keep forgetting to. I need to follow up with him. Yeah, because he he had put out an invitation if anybody wants to go dig with him. Is that what he was? Okay. Somebody send me a little reminder and I'll... Um, I've got it on one of my things to-do lists somewhere. I think it's either this one or this one. Yeah. Or one of the other ones. Yeah. <clears throat> well, God, God's amazing. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your power and your goodness. And um, we thank you for your word. Also, we uh, just thank you for brothers and sisters 
um, who have um, various knowledge of science and geology that help us understand the geological processes. And um, we just pray, Father, that you would help us to humbly grow in our knowledge of your word and in our application of it and in our sharing of it with <coughs> gentleness and fear, um, just, um, just depending upon you to do the work in people's hearts. Thank you for the gospel that we see revealed in the flood, that while our sin is deserving of judgment, and at that time it did receive judgment, <coughs> you are in the business of saving, bringing people by faith, who come by faith onto the rescue of the ark, the rescue of Christ. We throw ourselves upon you, knowing that we are not righteous in and of ourselves, but we thank you for the righteousness you've granted to us. We pray, Lord, that in our generation <coughs> that we would see many more people be saved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Next week we'll be talking about the Tower of Babel, so please come for that. That's going to be a killer lesson.